In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. The Church has um, put for us um, a very intentional ordering of the readings throughout the week. So we began this morning actually by recounting the Genesis, the creation of all mankind, so that we could understand the context of our existence. Because what it's narrating for us is a deep and long story of love between a father and his creation, between a dad and his children, between the Lord of all and those who he willingly willed into existence. And we see this language all throughout the prophecies and the readings that we read. We have read, I have loved you, says the Lord your God. Return to me and I will return to you. Um, earlier today we read the story of the vineyard where um, where God speaks almost in a parable and says, my beloved has planted a vineyard and he's given it everything um, that he could give it and planted it and watered it. It's a story of, of, of love and of effort. When he speaks even in the negative, he speaks <coughs> about the backsliding of Israel as somebody who is unfaithful in marriage. Marriage is the image given between God and his people. And then he said, is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? All of this speech is somebody who is speaking in love, outreaching um, his children and his creation. So there's a divine and intimate romance going on. And so God wills us into existence. I was having a conversation recently with somebody struggling with faith. And he was struggling with the concept of people not having a choice in their existence. And it made me think about a lot of different things because truly nobody chooses to be born. And I don't see, if we extract a certain aspect of relationship, much merit in childbearing or in child rearing. It brings a lot of agony and pain. It means a lot of sleepless nights. It means a crying child. It means being late for work and being exhausted. It means knowing that there's going to come a day when your child is going to turn on you, and that there's going to be a day when your child is going to prefer the company of others over your company and over your care. And where you might tell your child something, but he will not accept it from you, but he will from anybody else, even if it's the same words. It's, it's almost heartbreaking to, to even think about. And so if it weren't for one important thing, I don't think many people would be willing to have children. And the context of it is love. If there isn't love, then no, it's not worth it. But when there's love, suddenly every single one of these things becomes worth it. No matter what the agony is, no matter how difficult it is. So we're supposed to be in a relationship with God. And if we're in a relationship, then there's going to be expectations. Faithfulness, love, sacrifice, choosing your partner over yourself. And at least if you're not able to choose your partner over yourself, then at least over other people. There's an expectation as well that we would get to know one another. This is what God wanted. This is what he desired when he made us. And this is what he did when he placed us in the Garden of Eden. He was expecting that we were going to grow with one another, that we we're going to get to know one another. As a matter of fact, the fathers tell us that there is nothing wrong with the tree. The tree of the garden was not a bad tree. God doesn't create anything bad. 
But there is going to be a time for knowledge. We are supposed to grow in this knowledge. So he was simply saying, don't touch this right now. Let's, let's talk first. So that everything would grow in the context of our relationship with one another. That there's a proper time to know things. Just like we don't give an eight-year-old the keys to the car. It's not because driving is sinful. It's not because driving is bad. It's because it's not the right time. He doesn't know yet how to handle himself or how to perceive many things at the same time and organize his thoughts and hear things coming from behind him and from all over. It's just not the right time. This is what was why the tree was there. Let us get to know one another. And he withheld nothing from, from mankind. He said, this whole thing is yours. You even get to name the animals, right? And naming is even a, a symbol of authority, right? Is that when you name something, it means it's, it belongs to you. God could have said, no, it's mine, and I'm giving you permission to play in this garden. So no, it's, it's yours. Call them whatever you want. Um, and delighted in him and his creation. But something spoiled the relationship. It was the poison of sin and knowledge, which is referred to in the ninth hour of the morning readings. We were no longer content with just the knowledge of God. We doubted his love, right? The, the temptation of the serpent was very deep. It wasn't just one of pride. It wasn't just one of breaking fast of, of chastity, really, when you think about it. The devil came with very deliberate words. He asked Eve, are you sure? Are you sure that really the day you eat of this tree, this is what's going to happen to you? He put in that seed of doubt and said, or is it really more that you're going to be like him? And God doesn't want this. He took a bunch of true things and put one little bit of poison, just a 1% cyanide in the middle of the, of the chocolate bar. Everything about it was good. It is true if they ate from the tree that they'd have more knowledge. That wasn't a lie. That's what happened. But it wasn't true that God didn't want them to eat from it because it was going to make them compete with him. But it made it seem to them like this is worth having. And the immediate problem with this was their sense of shame. It was a wrong knowledge at the wrong time. That's why immediately what they do is hide. In the same way that we know when there's something unfaithful in our relationship to another person, we become evasive. This is true of myself at the very least. I know that when I'm doing something wrong, I stay away from people who will expose me to myself when I'm uncomfortable, even though it's the opposite of what we ought to do. If you want, think of it almost like a glass of pure water. When that glass is pure, you can look right through it and you can see clearly. But what this knowledge did is throw a bunch of stuff in the water and cloud things out that everything became distorted. So you're looking through the same glass, but you're not seeing it in the same way because you're no longer seeing it through the lens of a pure relationship with God. You're seeing something spoiled. Whereas God might have added good knowledge to it over time. He would have added minerals and vitamins that are transparent that you'd still see right through it. So that this water becomes more and more life-giving over time, not more and more distorted. This is what we did. And so the whole story of salvation is a story of relationship, of this begging and pleading with us to come back to this initial state of relationship, the state of purity. So I was hoping to meditate with you guys on the different kinds of relationships presented to us today, 
through the readings of the morning and the evening, of false relationships, and then with what we do to remedy them, to come back to him as he requested. So the first kind of false relationship presented to us is where he actually outright calls the children of Israel a harlot. Actually, he uses a W word, and we won't say it in front of the children. He uses very strong words. He says, you have gone around prostituting yourself. This is a false relationship. A relationship where you pretend you have a relationship with someone, whereas every first thing that you see coming your way you take, and you give to yourself completely. This does not have to only be a sexual thing. This can also be our, any one of our addictions, whether it's gambling or work or profession or studying. We have different things that we give ourselves to completely and that we're not willing to let go of. We have no self-control over. The next demonstration he gives us are the Pharisees who act in hypocrisy, where they're not having a relationship with him, they're having a relationship with everything else about him. And they act like they know everything, but they're actually the ones who are missing the point. Those of us who walk around, who talk about the gospel, who talk about church, and we talk about God, but we never talk to God. And we actually have very little experience with Him if we're going to be real about it. And because of this, our faith doesn't stand. We're more concerned about our ego, we're more concerned about our positions, we're more concerned about how the rest of the world perceives us. Because our focus is on the system and not the God of the building. He then goes on to talk to us about people who are negligent, who follow their own law and not the law of the Lord. This was in the third hour in the morning. Those of us who think, yeah, 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 there's a God, but I can still do whatever I want. Yeah, it is true. You can do whatever you want. This is true. That doesn't mean that you're wrong for choosing something over another. Then he speaks about half-hearted people with polluted sacrifice. He says, Woe unto you who call evil good and good evil. And then he says in the, the homily, St. Shinoda said this morning, that we let people get away with sin even in the churches. And we call it good. We're encouraging it with the whole malish malish. It's not malish. It doesn't mean that we don't fall. It's another thing to okay it. The two very different things. And sometimes we confuse um, mercy for negligence. It's one thing to say, it's all right that you fell, get up. And it's another thing to keep on saying, don't worry, just fall. And acting like it's okay. But the Lord is very clear on where he stands on sin. There's no ambiguity whatsoever in any of the readings on what he actually feels towards sin. And he hates it because it's a disease, and it kills us, and it kills our relationship. Which of us wouldn't hate the thing that draws people away from us that we care about? All of us will. We will, we will hate the person who, who's taken our spouse. We are going to hate the person who's made their kid no longer want to talk to them. It's, not, it's because we love, right? Anything that poisons this relationship, we have contempt towards. And this is how God feels about sin. So he doesn't want us to okay it. Yes, he is merciful when we fall, but it needs to be identified as a fall, not as an acceptable act. He then speaks about the double-hearted person. This is the 11th hour 
in the wisdom of Jesus, the son of Sirach, where he gives a woe, he gives a, a, a negative thing towards those who are double-hearted, those of us who say, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Arabic um, adage, Sal Rabbak wa Sal Albak, right? Which in English is an hour for your God and an hour for your heart. Those of us who we do the hymns thing, we do the praise thing, we do the stand and dress as a deacon thing, but our heart is somewhere else. Our heart is with the other things that we enjoy more. And when we do them, we just excuse ourselves with the, ah, malish, yani, it's fun, everybody yani, has to go through this. Sometimes the almost the, the Augustine complex, right? One day I'll, I'll come back. But for now, I want to enjoy this. Then he says of those who, where he says, distrust not the fear of the Lord when you are poor. Those of us who care about God until we lack something. When we have a struggle, when we have hardship, when somebody dies, somebody goes through a divorce, somebody gets cancer, and suddenly after singing God's praise and, and, and of His mercy, and we comfort other people in those situations, Madish, Madish, God will be with you, He will help you. When it comes to us, suddenly it's, where is God? Why is there no God? If there was a God, I wouldn't have this and this and this and this. And it doesn't even have to be a tragedy. It can also be something as simple as emotions. Sometimes when we don't have emotions that we think we're supposed to have, then there's no God. I'm supposed to always be excited. I'm supposed to always be passionate about prayer. I'm supposed to always, always... And you have your own system for what it should be. And then when you do not have them, you walk away from God. This is not a real relationship. This is self-love disguised as a relationship with God. Which is why the parable that the Lord gives this morning and that we, sell it, we, we, we commemorate on, on Monday of Pascha is the fig tree. It's a false relationship. It's all show. No fruit. That is why God was so upset when he saw it. He was using it to show us what we were like. We put out these beautiful leaves in front of society. We look rich when really we are empty. And we're not ready for the day of the Lord's visitation. That the day that the Lord came and wanted fruit, the day of its reckoning, the day of the Lord, which is the theme of Pascha week, which gets said over and over, it was empty. And this is why the Lord cursed it. And that's why coupled with the fig tree is the cleansing of the temple. They might not seem connected, but if you understand the day of the Lord's visitation, then it's actually one and the same thing. The temple became a marketplace, void of prayer, misreading ourselves and the people. This is what the ninth hour of the morning Pascha said. But the temple didn't belong to them. The temple belonged to God. And they forgot that. They thought that it was their own. And the Pharisees and the priests and even all of the Jews, they treated it like it was their own and they boast about it as their own, even as we do with the church. But the church doesn't belong to anybody. Not to the Pope, not to the bishops, not to the priests, not to any of you. It is God's. And if He in His love allows us to run it like it's our own, then that's because he's loving. It's not because it's yours by your own right. It belongs to him. But there's a day when the Lord is going to visit. And if you run it like your own, then you'll be mad even at the Lord, as though he has no right to what is his own possession. 
because the day that the Lord visited, they were angry with him. And all, all that he was saying was right. This is his house. He wasn't entering into a guest chamber and being rude to the, the, the people who invited him. He's in his own home. And they're telling him, you're wrong. And, and, and really, he could have been a lot meaner and said, what are you talking about? I'm wrong. This is mine. But they didn't understand because they cared more about themselves and their authority and what they had in it and the emotions that they attached to it, the profit that they derived from it. They were having a very false relationship with God while living in and running what really was his house. They were not in a faraway place. They were in the house. But their relationship was not real. So how do we fix it, right? We don't need to uh, only look at the negative. And so the, the readings also teach us how to have a relationship with God. First of all, whether you like it or not, you are in a relationship. It doesn't matter if you want it. You are in one because you exist, right? Even if a child decides to tell his dad, I don't love you anymore and I'm not your son, it's nice. He's still his son. He can't change that. Genetically, he is his son. And even if he ceases to exist, the memory of him exists, he is his son. So all of us are sons to God, whether we want to claim our sonship or not, whether we want to participate in it or not, we are all sons and daughters of God. So you're in a relationship. So be very aware of that, because sometimes when we think, oh, I have no relationship with God. Yes, you do. It might be a weak one, but it exists. There's always one in existence so long as you are in existence. The first thing that we read in the Gospels to help us is a command. Well, it's not the first thing, but the first one I wrote down. It is from the sixth hour Gospel, which is the command, watch. Be attentive. Take heed, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged, and the cares of this life overtake you, and that day becomes upon that day comes upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all of them. Watch. Right? In the same way that we do, we tell our, our kids, careful, don't talk to strangers. Careful if somebody says this to you. We start asking our kids, what did you hear at, at school today? Who are your friends? What do they tell you? What do you joke about? Right? When you see a text message on their phone that looks like disturbing, you freak out um, because you're, you're watching for them. You want to guard their purity. You want to guard their thoughts. You want to guard them from any exposure that's going to hurt them. Do the same for yourself in the relationship. Watch for the things that are going to make you go towards any of these negative relationships and be aware of them. Because if you do this, it's easier to overcome sin. When you look around the world and say, okay, everybody is doing whatever they feel like. If you're attentive, you'll notice that something is wrong. I remember thinking to myself as a pharmacist, for all of this, like, do whatever you want and whatever makes you happy, that's what the world says, whatever makes you happy, why are all of my patients on antidepressants? They're unhappy, right? But if you're not watching, you won't, clue into this. You just want it because everyone's doing it. But if you're watchful, you are able to divorce yourself from it and say, what is going on? Right? There's something here that's not right. Why aren't they content when they're doing these things? And why am I not content? And that should lead you to an action. So the first thing to do is to watch. The next thing 
is the Christian command. Pray always. And I preach this to myself first and foremost because it's a very difficult thing to do. Prayer is not just talking. Prayer is not um, an, an act that you just complete. Okay, there's a reason why, why Christ said, and he gave this prayer unto them to show them how men ought to always pray and not to faint. And that's why St. Paul says, pray without ceasing. Because prayer is about being in the presence of God. It's an encounter with God. It's something beyond just a set of formalized prayers. Formalized prayers are just one way of it. But it's about constantly being in the presence of this other person. So if we look back at this concept of relationships, with God you can always look at him either as a father or a spouse. Both of these analogies he gives to us. When you're in love with somebody, they're on your mind day and night. Like you, you can't help it. Anybody who's in a new relationship is irritatingly infatuated with the other person, right? You're in their presence and all they can think of is the other person. All they want to talk about is the other person. You're like, yeah, that's nice, right? Or even new parents. I remember when my sister had my nephew, like it was fun for us because we love my nephew, but when visitors would come, we're like, yeah, this morning he smiled. And to us, we're so excited like that he, he smiled and laughed more than yesterday, right? Oh, remember when you gave him the bottle this way, what he did? And they're like, yeah, yeah, can we, can we talk about something else, right? Whereas to us, we're so excited because of the joy and the love that we have at this. But the person who's in a relationship is looking at everything through the lens of the other person being present in terms of what job do I take? Because is this going to take away from, is this going to have an, an impact on my relationship? Is this something that if my spouse heard about she'd be okay with or he'd be okay with? I don't think so. But thinking of them, Right As you're driving, oh wow, Lord, this is beautiful. Thank you for creating this. Having that knowledge of God in all times and in all places. Because we have to get to know the person that we love. If you don't talk to the person, you don't know them. Right? Nobody can come into a relationship and just be like, hi, I like you. And then walk away and go home and be like, yeah, I had a relationship today. Like It's, it's nonsensical and we would laugh at it. But the same thing is true of God. If you talk about God and you just talk to Him for three minutes a day, like, today I spoke to God, good job. That's not a relationship. Prayer is something that's a living thing. It has to be alive at all times. We have to pray always. Then we're told, seek the Lord. This is in the 11th hour of the evening. It's also in the ninth hour prophecy sorry, of tonight, where he said, Seek the Lord until He come and rain righteousness upon you. You don't make yourself righteous. He does. So look for Him. There is, I had a conversation with my spiritual father earlier today, and I was glad because he gave me content um, by accident. I was talking to him about sometimes not being in the right mood, right? Like where sometimes, you know, like, Things are hard, so you just don't want to talk to anybody. So you just, you avoid them. He's like, don't avoid God, <laughs> right? Seek the Lord. He spoke to me, he said, remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? They were in a bad mood, right? They're walking and they're leaving Jerusalem being like this man, we thought he was the Christ. Turns out he's not, right? He died. And so they're upset and they're walking and they're not content with anything that happened. And suddenly, because their hearts were seeking the Lord, and they really believed that this man was, was more than a man. They, there is something. Christ comes, and he walks with them for a really long time. It's not for like a second or two. 
he goes on a really long journey with them. And as he's walking with them, he expounds to them that these things must have been so. And he starts telling them about the scripture. And says, no, 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 did you not understand? This was this, this meant this, this had to happen for this. And suddenly, their mood lifts. And they say that, They're like, we're, they say, were not our hearts on fire while he was with us? That's what they felt. If we seek the Lord, our relationship with him will strengthen. We need to go to him and to his words. We need to spend time in meditation. We need to meditate on the Bible and know who is he. Not just talk to him in the prayer. Listen, stop and listen. Read the words of the Bible and let him become a living person to you so that as you speak to him, you have his personality. Because when we speak, to, the more we get to know one another, the easier it is to talk. And the easier it is to be silent around another. We become more comfortable. If I don't know someone, we're, we're looking for words. And if I don't know what they're like, I'm worried about what I say. Am I bothering them? Am I, am I overdoing it? Am I too loud? Right? But as you spend time, you get this personality of both starts to come through and you're just comfortable and at peace. If you want a real relationship with Christ, you must do the same. Who is he? This is the beautiful thing about the story of Zacchaeus. My favorite line in that story is that it says Zacchaeus climbed the tree because he wanted to see Jesus for who he was. Not for a miracle. Not for anything else. Who is he? This guy that everybody is talking about. Who is he? I want to know him. We need to seek the Lord and he will reign upon us with his righteousness. Then we need to avoid being a hypocrite or a Pharisee. This is the only category of people that Christ was ever harsh with. No sinner came to him and had a negative encounter with God. None. In fact, he protected them. He praised them. And the Samaritan woman, he praised them. The woman caught in adultery, he vindicated her and consoled her and forgave her no conditions. Only the Pharisees did he ever come swooping in with this whole chapter of woes on them because it's a destructive relationship. It kills yourself and it kills the people around you. How many people have you met that left the church or don't come because they're all, her- they're all Pharisees, they're all hypocrites. They, che- they teach all this stuff and they never do it. They say, yeah, Jesus loves, but when I come in and I have a tattoo, they treat me like I'm garbage. When they find out that I fell and I had premarital relationships, then they tell me, don't come anywhere near my kids. And it's true. It is true, we do that. We should not be the ones who do that. And then we talk about the Pharisees and hypocrites in church. Well, we are the Pharisees and the hypocrites in the church. We need to re- look at ourselves and see, am, am I a Pharisee? Am I a hypocrite? And if I am, am I at least trying? Because there was one good Pharisee that we read about this week, Nicodemus, who stops and says, no, I, I want to understand, I'm, I'm convicted by what you're saying. And he comes to him, and he becomes a bishop in the church. His whole life is converted by leaving what he was doing. The next thing is to keep the commandments. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. That was the 11th hour this morning. And later on, our Lord says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Again, we're in a relationship. And commandments, what are the commandments? Love. Love God above all and your neighbor as yourself. That's how Christ summarized the commandments. 
right? Look at the Old Testament commandments that everybody is bitter and whining about. I don't know what's so bad about them. He's saying, don't take things that don't belong to you. Be nice to each other. Don't ever wish something bad upon another. Don't take things that aren't yours, whether it's property or each other's spouses. It's not yours, don't touch it. Have respect. Love me because I love you. I made you and I didn't need to make you. If we're a family, we need to have this relationship with one another. That's the commandment. That's all it is. Love. So if we're going to keep the commandments, then we will see His dwelling in us and the Holy Spirit grows in us. And when the Holy Spirit grows in us, we learn more. More is revealed. And we find that we start to have all of these joy and fruits and, and the fruits of the Spirit that we read about. But if we don't keep the commandment, we don't learn how to love. And if we don't know how to love, your relationship is weak. Because a relationship is about love. Any relationship on a secular level that is not based on love falls apart. There's no fidelity in it, right? And it's not about a written rule. It's about the rule of love. If you know your spouse is upset that you're texting somebody, then you don't text them even if it's fine. If you know that mom doesn't like when I do this particular thing and I see nothing wrong with it, then I won't do it. It's not because this is illegal. It's because my action does something to the relationship and I want to protect it because I love. I could go home and slap my mother across the face and she'd forgive me. And I would hope that the reason I prevent myself from, from slapping her is not because I'm afraid of feeling guilt. It's because I love her. Why would I want to hurt her? So he's very explicit with us about what hurts our relationship and that these sins are diseases to us and end our relationship because we're too diseased to interact, then I should happily refrain from these. And even if not happily, for the sake of love. Right? Of just saying, I, I won't, just for the sake of love. The next part is what happens when we don't keep these commandments. The Lord says in the first hour of the evening prophecies, turn you, turn your heart, is what he means, from your evil ways. And then he says to us, strive to enter through the narrow gate. You have to work, right? There has to be a work. Every passion, okay, everything we're battling against us is actually just misdirected love. That's all it is. If we have lust, really it's an unfulfilled love for God and we're just directing it in the wrong place. And that's why we're not getting contentment from it. Just refocus it. That's all repentance is. Repentance is taking something that exists for a good thing and redirecting it. It's, it's a spiritual U-turn, okay? It's a change of heart. I'm like, why am I investing this effort into something that's futile when it should be going to something that's life-giving, right? Something that can actually grow. It's like suddenly realizing that I'm watering concrete instead of watering the grass. The concrete's not ever going to grow no matter how much time you invest in it. It's not St. John the Short Stick. It's just concrete. But if you take it and you put it on the grass, it's going to grow. That's all repentance is. We need to make, we need to turn from our evil ways and strive. Because as St. Macarius of Egypt said, whose feast day was yesterday, the most important work that a spiritual wrestler can do is to enter within the heart and there to fight Satan, to hate and repel the thoughts that he inspires to wage war upon him. Anything he gives us that's unholy, to hate it with a vengeance. To enter in the heart and say, this is not for me. I don't care what it is. These seeds of doubt, these seeds of misdirect love, whatever it is, to fight it. And then that will lead us to real love. 
because the passions are self-love. The opposite is self-denial, right? There's a wonderful section from Theophan, the recluse, where he says, there's one method which if practiced with full attention will seldom allow anything passionate to slip unnoticed into the heart. This is what will prevent the passions from taking root. This is to examine our thoughts and feelings so as to discover, which is watchfulness, which we talked about above, so as to discover which way they tend, towards pleasing God or towards pleasing ourselves. It is quite easy to determine this. All you have to do is watch. Watch yourself. Know that so long as you do not pander to yourself in what you do, there is no fault in it. One of the elders said to his disciple, Watch lest you harbor a traitor within yourself. Who is the traitor? asked the disciple. Self-gratification, answered the elder. And this is indeed so. Self-gratification is the cause of all evils. If you examine all the bad things that you have done, you will see that in each case they originated from pandering to yourself. If we always give ourselves whatever we want, you won't know how to love because you will choose yourself always first. And it requires work. It takes practice. This is why we fast, right? If all we do when we fast is change ingredients, then you haven't benefited much. But the object is say, no, I'm going to deny myself from something. Even if that thing isn't a wrong thing, I'm going to learn how to say no to myself for the sake of a higher thing. In the same way that Christ, our God, in the morning's prophecy readings from Genesis, made us when there was no need to make us and the ultimate knowledge of self-denial because in making us he knew it was going to result in his death. That is ultimate self-denial. Finally, our Lord says something today that's very compelling. He says to the people, if I'm a father, where is my honor? And if you can't see me as a father, and you want to see me as a master or a tyrant, okay, even as that, where is my fear? You don't even treat me like any of them. Neither do you treat me like a dad, nor do you treat me like a master. Like, like none of them. You're just doing your own things. And in another spot he says, he says to them, I have loved you. And you say to me, wherein have you loved us? Like, where it's this very, like, typical, like, adolescent kid response. Yeah, right, how did you love me? And he says, well, I chose you. I didn't have to choose you. I chose Jacob, I didn't choose Esau. The promise, the children of the promise, were the children of, of Jacob. I've done all of these things. But you, you pollute my altars. You priests who are offering the worst of what you've got. And keep in mind this warning, which definitely applies to, to the priests, applies to all of you. Because we are all priests now. Every one of you is a priest. Every one of you is a prophet. Every one of you is a king. You have been anointed. So if any of us are offering to him less than perfect sacrifice, the leftovers that we have, the things that just we don't want, the stuff that you would not get away with offering to your boss, which is what he says to them, go offer it to your governor. See if he'll take it. Go offer it to your teacher, to your principal. Go and offer it to the governor, or the president, or the king, or whoever it is that you view as a person of authority, and see if they would be happy with what you did. And if they are, go serve them. 
But I have loved you with a never-ending love, and you have not returned this love to me. We trust in ourselves. Instead, we should recover our sonship. We are the sons of a king, right? He's calling us sons. If we're the sons of the king, then we're heirs. We are princes and princesses. Right? How many of our kids like love to like pretend that they are, and how many of our little girls dress up as princesses for fun? And our young guys wish they were kings, and they're into this whole battle warfield thing. But we are, and we are in a battle. Recover your identity as a son and take pride in your sonship. And if you do, you will want to defend the dignity of your relationship and the dignity of your household. Just like no family wants its secrets out. No matter what, even if somebody in the house is doing something wrong, they want to protect it. Recover. Recover your sonship. And then you can boast in your dad. You can be like a little kid again who's like, yeah, my daddy is better than your daddy. My daddy does this and this and this and this. And be excited about it. When somebody hurts you, you can say to them, oh, my dad's stronger than yours. Because he is. He is the mighty warrior. He is the prince of peace. He is the one who comes on a, as a rider named Victory. This is our God. If we want a strong relationship, then we need to recover our identity. And if we do not, and we trust in ourselves, you will simply fall. Because you have no strength, and you have no ability. What do you have that isn't from Him, and what can you do except by grace? And He's not just any dad. He's a dad who took on our weaknesses as a great high priest. He enclosed himself in our flesh and went through every possible thing that you can imagine that you have gone through, he went through. There's nothing he didn't go through and he didn't have to. He did not have to, but he elected to. So this is a dad who can actually relate to you that when you're struggling or in pain and you say, Lord, I'm suffering, and he says, I know, it's not just, I know because I see you. I know because I experienced it. I went through it even more further than you did. Because he was innocent and we are not. And he was doing it for us and he was killed by us. He wasn't killed by a stranger. He was killed by his own household, by his own creation. So that, we would, so that he would know our weaknesses and our infirmities. Or as St. Dioscorus says in a fragment of one of his letters, he was with us, like us, and for us. The last thing, because it's Pascha, that I say if you want your relationship to reach the pinnacle of reality, of self-denial and love, there's a, a statement made by one of the apostles, it's not clear whether he's being sarcastic or funny or if he means it sincerely, when after the Lord says he's going to Jerusalem, one of the apostles says, yeah, Let's go with him so that we too might get killed. Yeah, let us go with him that we too might be killed. Regardless of whether we're sarcastic or joking, yes, we ought to. Because if we take his example seriously, he said to us, if you want to be mine, take up the cross and follow me. Any real Christian must suffer, must it's a result of this world. And he suffered too. If we would like to participate with him fully as a family member, 
then we must suffer. So many of us have seen people in anguish and pain. You can't comfort them with words. How do you comfort them with words? There's nothing you can say that will really ease the burden of it. Maybe it will for 30 seconds, and then when you leave, it's gone. Sometimes the best thing you can do is go through it with them. Simply be with them. And if there's something that you can bear, bear it with them. And so we are allowed this honor of suffering for Christ. Whether it's through disease or hardship or pain, we are allowed to do this. But if we accept the cross and we walk with him to Calvary, then we rise with him from the sepulcher and we have the joy of being his children and the joy that is everlasting. And glory be to our God forever and ever.